So, Father, we come now to your word, and we ask that you would use it to illuminate our hearts and our minds and understanding that we would see a clearer picture of who you are, see a clearer picture of who we are, of who your son Jesus is. Father, we thank you for the privilege of once again singing and hearing the good news that because the sinless Savior died, our sinful souls are counted free. We thank you, Father, that you being just are satisfied to look on your son Jesus and to pardon us. I thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came to do what we could never do for ourselves. I thank you that through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, we can, as a free gift, a free gift, call on him in faith and be saved and be set free from the power of sin in our lives and be set free from the penalty of sin and death. Lord, it's our prayer this morning that the miracle and the joy of that truth would never escape us. That our hearts would never become numb or dull or immune to these glories that should shake us to our core. Thank you for you, Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. So Father, we submit ourselves now to the authority of your word. Use it to test us and to search us. Let us hear your voice through these words today. Father, you speak through me a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. And we ask, as your son asked for his disciples, sanctify us in truth, for your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, if you're not there already, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me in your Bible. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. This is the passage Ron read for us just a few moments ago, verses 25 through 34. And if you're here today as our guest, if it's your first time with us, my name's Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. I'm honored to have you here with us today. And uh, for the last few weeks, our, our church family has been in a message series called Ecclesia, where we have been looking at what the church is and more specifically, what the church is called to do according to God's terms. It's really easy for our definitions of the church and our uh, uh, assumptions and understandings and preferences and opinions of what the church should be. It's easy for all these things to shape the body of Christ. And so what we're doing for a few months as a church family is simply coming to the word of God to see church on his terms, to see church defined on his terms, and to see his call for his people and his call for the body of Christ as he laid out in the word. So in week one, we defined the word church. We saw that despite what opinions we might have and preferences we might have and convictions we might hold, uh, that this word church, like all words, does in fact have a meaning. In its simplest form, the word church simply means assembly or gathering. Uh, more specifically, when we look at the totality of the New Testament, we see that a local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. As we read the New Testament, this is church. 
Whenever we get away from these, these are really the irreducible minimums that once we get away from what's been prescribed here, uh, we no longer have a biblical definition of church regardless of what our opinions and convictions and preferences may be. And so it's important for us as followers of Christ to continually return to the Word of God to align our opinions, convictions, preferences, and understanding with what God has actually revealed in His Word. So we saw in week chapter 1, we defined the word church, and we saw that the church was born in the labor of prayer. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, this was the church at day 1. The people of God were gathered together. They were praying. And as they prayed, the power of the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And uh, they were filled with the strength of the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. He proclaims the message of the gospel. And on that day, 3,000 people are saved. Then for the next two weeks, we saw the role of teaching and preaching within the body of Christ. We saw last week that preaching is the most important work that God has given the church to do. The word preach means to simply herald or to proclaim. The gospel is good news, so we proclaim it. And it's the proclamation of the word of God that forms the people of God. And so teaching then within the body of Christ is about leading us to full maturity as disciples who are following Jesus. Now today and next week, we're going to turn our attention to the two ordinances of the church. I'm looking uh, today at baptism and then next week at communion. Um, within you know, church leadership at large in, in our culture, there's no small discussion and debate right now about the role of, of uh, the digital media in the life of the church. Um, particularly over the last couple of years, a lot of this has been exacerbated. And, you know, broadcasting services is not new. This is something that's been going on for decades. But especially with the rise of streaming technology and just increased reliance on technology and, and video reality, um, you're just seeing now the church having to grapple with these questions of what does this mean for the future of the body of Christ? particularly in light of the rise uh, of what's been, known, uh, what's been called most recently um, the metaverse. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who is a uh, creator of Facebook, he's defined the metaverse as a virtual reality environment you can go inside of instead of just uh, hold, looking out on a screen. People can meet, work, and play using VR headsets, augmented reality glasses, smartphone apps, or other devices. Uh, the AP had an article recently where they defined virtual reality. It was uh, the metaverse as a virtual reality construct intended to supplant the internet, merge virtual reality with real life, and create endless new playgrounds for everyone. And, and so, you know, basically, what we've got now is this world where, like, you can strap on a headset. And you can go into these environments that sometimes combine elements of real life, and you can meet other people. Uh, you can work, you can play, you can go on vacation, you can go to destinations that you never imagined that you were uh, going to be able to go before. And um, right in step with the trends of the last few decades, you can now strap on a headset and quote-unquote go to church. Um, there are now environments where you can put on a VR headset and you can attend uh, a Sunday morning worship service. You can walk in, you can meet people, you can listen to a sermon, you can sing songs, you can even digitally take communion, and if you become a follower of Christ, you can have a digital baptism. Now, a, a line that we have repeated week in and week out for the last few weeks is, is the very simple truth that words have meaning. And we ask the question, why spend 13 weeks talking about what the church is and, and what the church should be doing? It's because things like this keep happening. Because we, we even, and listen, I, I think it's with the very best of intentions. Like we see something that, that is good and could potentially be useful, and, and we see a way that we might be able to serve other people. And so with the very best of intentions, we'll, we'll immediately embrace these things, but I fear at times not totally considering the ongoing long-term repercussions and ramifications. 
And so we have to continually come back to the Word of God to be reminded that words have meaning. And just the same way this word church has a meaning, and we've been fleshing out that definition for the last few weeks, this word baptism, as we're going to see today, it has a meaning. So the word baptize in its simplest form, it it just means to immerse or to dip under. Um, We as a church, our conviction is believers' baptism by immersion. If you wonder, why is it do we dunk people under the water and bring them back up? Because that's what the word means. It's in its simplest form. The word baptize means to immerse or to dip under. Uh, More specifically, this is from Jonathan Lehman. Um, He defines baptism as a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. In baptism, what we are doing, and and so much of what baptism by immersion in particular, what we're demonstrating is that we by faith have called on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation, and we desire to publicly identify with him as his followers. And in baptism, what we're showing is that as we go under the water and we come back up, we're demonstrating that our old self and our sin has been buried with Jesus Christ, and we have been raised up to new life in his name. And, and this is not just some sort of metaphorical experience, so, something that we can just kind of check a box and say that we did it. As we're going to see today, baptism is an embodied experience. It, it is a physical, visible act that we do as a family of believers, as the body of Christ, to demonstrate that we have died to our old sin, died to our old self. We've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. We want to identify as his followers and to identify with the body of Christ called the church. Friends, words have meaning. And regardless of what our intentions might be, regardless of how pure our motives might be, we have not been given the freedom to make them mean what we want them to mean. So uh, today as we open up Acts 16, we're going to see that all who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation are called to follow him in baptism as a public profession of faith. So what is baptism? How do we know when someone's ready to be baptized? Who should be baptized? When should baptism take place? These are all questions that we're going to look at today from Acts chapter 16. Now, uh, some of you might remember 10 years ago in the year 2020, um, we as a church went through uh, the book of Philippians together. And, and it's a pretty powerful story how the, uh, the church in Philippi got its start. That's where we're picking up today in Acts 16. So Paul and Silas were called by the Lord to take their mission and uh, ministry, to take the message of the gospel to Macedonia. And so upon their arrival, they start their gospel ministry. Those of you who were with us in the fall of 2020, remember that uh, the first two converts to the church in Philippi were a very successful businesswoman named Lydia. And then there was also a slave girl who was demon-possessed and apparently had some sort of fortune-telling ability that was a very lucrative business. And so these are the first two converts of the church in Philippi. That was the church planting team. Paul, Silas, Lydia, demon-possessed girl. And so um, her masters did not like this. And, and, and by the way, that's more authentic to church planting than you might think it is. Um, th- their masters were apparently upset by this. She could no longer make money for them. This is now touching the economy. And so they have Paul and Silas thrown into prison. And in Acts 16, just a second, we're going to jump right into verse 30. Ron read this earlier, but, but this is what's going on. They've been thrown into prison for the ministry of the gospel. But at midnight, it's one of the most powerful stories in the New Testament, Paul and Silas begin to sing. Locked in chains, hands and feet in stocks. And this was designed, friends, to, to, to just inflict the most excruciating amount of pain as possible. They're crying out to God. 
They lift their voices in song. They lift their voices up in prayer. And then an earthquake comes. And all of the gates of the prison are are shaken open. And their shackles are, are shaken free. This guard is so overwhelmed. He thinks all of this is happening on his watch. These prisoners are going to escape that he's prepared to take his own life. He knows that for all of these prisoners to leave on his own watch is going to lead to his execution. He's prepared to take his own life. But Paul cries out to him and says, don't do it. We're all still here. He comes to Paul and Silas. He brings them out. He comes to them in fear and trembling. And this is where we pick up in Acts 16, verse 30. It says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's the most important question we could ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So what we're going to do with these few verses this morning, as we look at the conversion of the Philippian jailer, we're going to draw out six truths that this passage teaches us about baptism. We're going to do these very quickly. Uh, First one that we see here is that baptism is for all who have believed in Jesus for salvation. This is who baptism is for. It's for all who have believed in Jesus for salvation. So the jailer and his family, they hear the message of the gospel, they believe, and then they're baptized. This is the pattern all the way through the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, the preaching of the gospel is always paired with the practice of baptism. Those who who believe the good news, those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved, they demonstrate their faith by following Jesus in baptism. This is inaugurated through the ministry of John the Baptist. This was his message, repent and be baptized. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know that Jesus himself, his ministry started out with him being baptized, him going down into the water with John, being baptized, coming up out of the water, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We know this was the pattern of Jesus and his disciples as he went about preaching the message of the gospel, as he went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. His disciples baptized those who would believe. It's an errand in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus gives these final words to his disciples. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. And what's the first instruction? Baptize them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we'll get into this in a few minutes. You know, while uh, followers of Jesus from different backgrounds might disagree on the method or mode of baptism, virtually every Christian is in agreement that we should be baptized. This is, this is inescapable as we read the New Testament. Those who profess faith in Jesus will follow him in baptism. We saw it a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter stands up to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Someone calls out from the crowd, brothers, what do we do? And how does Peter respond? Repent and be baptized. How many of them? Every one of you, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the clear New Testament pattern. People hear the gospel, they respond to the gospel, and they publicly profess faith in Jesus through baptism. Second, we see this morning, though, important distinction, baptism is not a work that saves us from our sins. 
Baptism is not a work that saves us from our sins. Every follower of Jesus is called to be baptized, but there is no work that we can do that saves us of our sins. Paul reminds us, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of works, it is a gift of God. There is no work that we can do to earn our salvation or eternal life, and baptism is a work. There's no amount of good works that we can do, nothing that we can do in order to earn salvation. Baptism is a work, and we're not saved by works. So baptism, then, it's not a work that saves us. Baptism is for us the work that we do to demonstrate that we have been saved. It is faith in Jesus Christ. It is repentance of our sins. It's trust in the name of the Lord. It's the saving grace of God that saves us. That's the root, and baptism is the fruit. It's a work that we do to demonstrate that we have been saved. And, and yet, church, we need to recognize that just because baptism is not a work that saves us, it's not optional for us as followers of Jesus. It was commanded by Jesus as part of the Great Commission, and Jesus makes clear, John 14, 15, to his disciples, if you love me, what will we do? We will keep his commandments. Baptism is a commandment given by Jesus, and if we love Jesus, we will follow his commandments. We will desire to love him by obeying him and following him in what it is that he's called us to do. You know, the way we tend to teach this in our baptism classes, and I'll sometimes do this whenever we are publicly baptizing, uh, just for those who are gathered with us, is you, know, you think a lot like baptism is like the wedding ring that I'm wearing right now. Like, do you have to have a wedding ring to be legally married? You don't have to. There's, there's, there's no law, there's no rule that says that you have to do this. No, but I, I choose to wear this wedding band because I want it to be known that I belong to my wife. My, my wife chooses to wear her engagement ring and her wedding ring. She wants people to know that she belongs to me. Now, if I had one and I was refusing to wear it, you might question my commitment and you would be right in doing this. Why are you so reticent to publicly identify this woman? So in the same way, if someone professes faith in Jesus Christ but refuses to be baptized, we have legitimate grounds to question whether or not they truly love him. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And what he has commanded is that we be baptized. Baptism is not a work that saves us, but it is a work that we will joyfully do to demonstrate that we have been saved. So he goes on from verse 31 into verses 32 and 33. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32, it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So we see third this morning, important distinction here, that baptism should be limited to those who can understand the word. Let's go, go back here for just a second again to verse 32. It says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So those who were gathered there, they were capable of hearing the gospel, understanding the gospel, comprehending the gospel, and then ultimately responding to the gospel in baptism. Again, you know, one of our doctrinal distinctives as a church that we champion is believers' baptism by immersion. And, and listen, this is not at all to discount other faithful traditions 
who faithfully preach the gospel, who faithfully teach the Bible, but uh, there are professing followers of Jesus with whom we disagree on this particular subject, uh, who might practice differently. Um, you know, and, and I think it's important anytime we, we get into this subject, it's most important to recognize that, that for many other backgrounds and denominations, like we are in agreement on the things that, that matter most. Let's not miss that, okay? Like when, when we are in agreement with other brothers and sisters in Christ over other matters, like we can agree to disagree to an extent over a subject um, like baptism. You know, so again, with respect to, to those who hold the, the paedo-baptist or the, the infant baptism narrative, um, that, that's just something that we don't see in the New Testament. Oftentimes, proponents of infant baptism will point to Acts chapter 16 and say, no, 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 it says the whole household was baptized. But, but to say that there were infants present, like, that's an argument from silence, and you have to assume that. So, so we dig into the context a little bit more, and it's pretty clear in verses 32 and 33, the only people who were baptized were those who heard and received the word. So again, we're, we're not given specific ages, so it doesn't say they were all above the age of 15, but they were at least old enough to where there was comprehension of the gospel. They could hear it, understand it, receive it, respond, and then ultimately profess faith through baptism. So again, I, th- I think that's one of the biggest obstacles to infant baptism through the New Testament is like, number one, we just don't have any examples of it. And even the ones that we, we might have, you have to assume uh, that it's there. And I, I just don't see that based on what we see everywhere else in Scripture. Again, Acts chapter 10, we see this in the household of Cornelius. They were baptized after receiving the word. Again, so it's implied that all who were baptized received the word. Acts 18.8, Crispus believed in the Lord together with his household. Those who were there were capable of hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, receiving the word. So again, without question, this still requires a lot of discernment. Okay, regardless of of whether or not uh, someone's a younger child or someone's in their 80s, we need to do the work, the the work of discipleship to ensure that people understand the gospel to to the best of their ability or comprehending the message of the gospel, demonstrate hearts of repentance and, and change in their lives. And so that's why we see forth that baptism must be accompanied by a credible testimony. Baptism must be accompanied by a credible testimony. Go back to Acts 16, and let's read verses 33 and 34. Look at the change that's happened in the life of the jailer. And he took them the same hour of the night, verse 33, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Look at the drastic change in the jailer's life that takes place in only a span of about 10 verses. We didn't read it this morning, but if you go back to verse 24, we find that the jailer was the one who was fastening their feet in the stocks. But when you fast forward to verse 33, the jailer was the one who was washing their wounds. In verse 25, Paul and Silas were prisoners in the jailer's cell. By verse 34, Paul and Silas are guests at the jailer's table. In verse 27, the jailer is ready to take his own life in total despair. By verse 34, he is celebrating the new life that he has found in Jesus Christ. I love this reflection from John Chrysostom, his homilies on Acts. He says of the jailer, he washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes, and he was himself washed from his sins. Such a beautiful, miraculous, transforming testimony, and it takes place quickly. Church, the evidence of genuine conversion is a life that is genuinely changed. 
When we read through the Gospels, listen, this is the one characteristic of people who came and met Jesus. They walked away different. Blind people came to Jesus, and when they walked away, they weren't blind anymore. People were brought to Jesus who couldn't walk, and then those same people picked up their beds and walked away. People who were greedy suddenly became generous. People who were cowards like Peter, denying the name of Jesus just a few weeks later, they're standing up and boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. The evidence of genuine conversion is genuine change. When we meet Jesus Christ, our lives will be radically transformed. Now, I just ask you to consider this morning, like, what has changed about your life since you met Jesus? Has anything changed? Do you live your life any differently than you used to live it before you profess faith in Jesus Christ? Church, we've got to understand, like, it's possible for you to be in church but still far from Jesus. It's possible for you to have grown up religious and not have ever met Jesus, The evidence of genuine saving faith is a life that has been radically transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. I just wonder, what what would radical transformation look like for you? What enemies would you suddenly love and forgive and find yourself praying for? What addiction, what substance would you just leave behind? What relationship would you bring to a close? Like what, what, What it might look like for you to surrender your identity completely? to surrender your identity, to surrender your personality, to surrender your sexuality, to bring all of that under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those who meet Jesus walk away different. Regardless of how we were born, the message of the gospel is you must be born again. When we meet Jesus, our lives look different. How has your life looked different since the time you met Christ? This is a credible testimony. And listen, yeah, it can happen as quickly as it happened here. This man, or think about like Zacchaeus. I mean, he immediately, what's he do? Invites Jesus into his home, and and then he starts giving back everything that he had illegally taken from people. This can be evidenced uh, immediately. And so what we see, fifth important note for us this morning, is that baptism should quickly follow a genuine profession of faith. Baptism should quickly follow a genuine profession of faith. Now Again, I want to just give a caveat here. Again, if, if someone doesn't seem to have a grasp of the gospel, they don't seem to really understand what it is that they're doing, that doesn't really seem to be able to articulate a story of, of you know, how they've met Jesus and how their lives are changing, then, then yeah, it's best that we delay in that moment. Like, we're, we're never going to rush people into something that they're not ready to do. You understand what I'm, what I'm saying here? Like, we need to do the work of discipleship, need to do the work uh, of discernment to make sure anyone who follows Jesus in baptism fully understands what it is that they're going to do. There's absolutely a danger in, in rushing people to the waters of baptism before they're ready. But isn't there equally a danger in delaying the waters of baptism too long? This is what's happened, because, you know, sometimes the pushback on this is, We'll point to different periods of church history and we'll be like, well, you know, some traditions, like, you had to memorize the whole catechism before you could be baptized. You know, you had to demonstrate faithfulness to Jesus for, for 12 months, for 18 months, for three years. And, you know, there, there is probably some wisdom in, okay, let's watch this person walk for a little while and let's, let's make sure that this is genuine, that they understand what they're doing. So there's a, a danger in rushing people to baptism, but is there not just as much a danger of requiring more of people to be baptized than has been required by Jesus himself? We see it in Acts 16. He was baptized that same hour. 
Go back to Acts chapter 2, where we were with Peter at Pentecost a few weeks ago. It says, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine that baptism service? Nobody made it to lunch that day, and nobody cared. I mean, what a crazy day. Like 3,000 people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, and they're baptized that day. They weren't given a theology exam. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Like that's the prerequisite to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. We see it in Acts chapter 8. This is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Philip shares the message of the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. He sits down. He finds a man reading the Bible. Philip comes to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? The man says, no, I don't. So what's Philip do? He sits down. He helps him understand. The man professes faith in Jesus as they're riding along in the chariot. He says, hey, there's, there's water over there. What prevents me from being baptized? And what's Philip's response? Nothing. And what do they do? They go down to the water. There is a danger. There is a danger in rushing people before they're ready. There is equally a danger of requiring more of people than is required by God. I hope you'll go look this up later today. This is um, Alistair Begg has this great sermon clip, and um, it's going to make you forget about my sermon today. It's going to be awesome. He does it in a Scottish accent. He sounds way cooler than I do in my Western Carolina jargon. And, and so he's got this really powerful uh, illustration that he shares of the thief on the cross. You know, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the, the thief the, professes faith in Jesus, and he looks at the thief who wasn't baptized, by the way, and, and he says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And, and so Alistair Begg just kind of creates the scene. He says, can you imagine what this man, what, this, the, the look on this man's face and the look on Peter's face when this man gets to the pearly gates? He's like, well, how'd you get here? I don't know. He's like, well, what about your doctrine of justification? Like, I, I, I don't know. Shouldn't we talk about your, your doctrine, your beliefs, and th your theology? And kind of goes through this list of things. And finally, he, he says, on what basis are you here? To which the thief replies, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Let's not require more than is required by Jesus. Let, let's be discerning and let's be wise. But when someone has made a credible profession and faith in Christ, and they, they seem to grasp and understand the message of the gospel, they seem to be genuinely repentant, and there seems to be genuine change taking place in their hearts. Church, biblically, we have no precedent to withhold from them the waters of baptism. We can do this quickly, and, and, and I think we should, because as we see here at last at the end of this passage 6, baptism is an occasion for joyful celebration. Baptism's an occasion for joyful celebration. This is verse 34. It says, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This man, five verses earlier, was to the point of despair just an hour before. He was ready to take his own life rejoicing because he'd found new life in Jesus Christ. Baptism is an occasion for joyful celebration. Like we know this as a church family. We love anytime we get to do baptisms. We did this a few weeks ago. You know, during the spring, we've got this outdoor tub that we use and we'll just gather everybody around. We were gathered together at the pool a couple of weeks ago. Like, does that ever get old? That, that absolutely never gets old. Like the cool videos that Grayson makes with like the really dramatic music, it's awesome, right? It never gets old. It never gets old celebrating new life in Jesus Christ. 
or even for those who are professing followers of Jesus who had never been baptized. Like, it never gets old celebrating steps of obedience towards Jesus. This is always an occasion for joyful celebration. We're not going to a funeral. We're going to a resurrection. And that's what we're observing as, as people come out of the waters of baptism. They are publicly demonstrating, I have died with Jesus Christ, and I've been raised to new life with him. It is always worthy of celebration. Now, this past week, I threw this out to our staff. It is a really simple question for, for them. I said, um, hey, just in, in one or two sentences, um, will you just detail for me what you remember most about the day you were baptized? I had a different intention of mine for this, but I like the answers, and so completely without their permission, because I'm the boss and do what I want, uh, I'm using this as part of my sermon today. Um, because th- this is, is, is just such a powerful picture, I think, of, of what it is we all tend to experience whenever it is we profess faith in Jesus through baptism. So I want you to listen to these, and there's, there's a couple of common denominators in all of them that I think you're going to pick up on uh, when we wrap these up. First came from uh, Monica Wilkinson, who did the welcome for us earlier. What Monica remembered about her baptism day was joy in following through with a journey of obedience the Lord had been calling me to, and gratefulness to have my dad baptize me and say publicly that I am his and he is mine. Cole Forrest is our student minister. He said, I remember being in the baptistry and being so jittery and excited that my children's pastor told the whole congregation I was about to come out of my skin in excitement. I was probably bouncing up and down so much, I'm surprised the choir didn't get splashed. I was so excited to get baptized and show everyone that I wanted to follow Jesus. Shay Jones, she said, I remember that it was on Easter 2017, three and a half years after surrendering to Christ. And my best friends and family from Beaufort drove up to Columbia to be there. My testimony was shared via video to the entire church. And sobbing through it all, my grandpa, who was the greatest model of Jesus I knew, baptized me with Dawson sitting on the front row. Grayson Johnson, our worship pastor, he said, I was very young, around Everett and Walker's age. Those are his boys, for those of you who don't know. He said, our church had just built an addition to the building with a baptistry. I remember getting excited. My uncle was the pastor. When I got into the baptistry, he asked why I wanted to be baptized, and I responded, I love Jesus. Everyone laughed and awed, and then I got dunked. I remember also my sweet black and red swim trunks, too. This is uh, Carolyn Leslie, um, children's ministry assistant. She said, I was 21 years old and had been baptized as an infant, uh, but felt the call and need to truly commit my life to Christ through his public declaration. I remember feeling overwhelmed with love and support from my church family. I knew this was the start of my intentional and continual surrendering of my life to the Savior. Michael Morrison's our connections pastor. He said, I remember internal conflict. I was a sophomore in high school, and I know standing in the baptistry completely sure of who I was in Christ, who Christ was, and why and what I was doing, So joy because of my new life in Christ, but fear of walking a new life after and what it would do. The baptism in itself was white robe, and the pastor was in his waders in cold water. Dustin Nally is our associate pastor. He said, I was a kid, remember all of my family and friends' faces, and knowing that I was joining something so much grander than myself and how I wanted to faithfully live a life for Jesus. I felt the weightiness of Pastor Phil calling me to follow Christ all the days of my life. It was a beautiful moment, one that I will never forget. Dave Eatman is one of our elders. He's a teaching pastor as well. He said, I was 23 and it was Easter Sunday. I had just surrendered to Christ the previous November. The little country church I attended didn't have a baptistry, so we had the service in the afternoon at another church down the road. The water was cold. I remember having the thought that life would be different from that point forward, and it deepened my desire to learn how to walk well with Christ. 
This is Leandra Livesey. She's our uh, executive director and kids ministry director. And uh, it's one of my favorites. She said, I was 13, baptized in a lake in October by my sweet Presbyterian pastor who only baptized babies. That is a brother who took one for the team. Amen? That is putting uh, non-essentials to the side for the sake of gospel unity. Amen? She said, my grandparents were there with the special needs men from their group home, and they started singing, we are standing on holy ground as I came out of the water. The rest of our church family joined to celebrate. It signified a transition in my relationship with the Lord from one based on what my parents told me to believe to taking ownership and truly believing based on what the Lord had done for me. This is my wife, Emily. She said, I was eight. I remember warm water and slippery socks. I was baptized right after an older lady in our church, and I remember her crying and rejoicing. She told me what a blessing that I had made the decision to follow Christ at a young age. Remember my baptism. About 20 years ago, uh, this past January in the um, spring of 2002, um, I'd made a profession of faith November before. I'd grown up in the church, but a few years before, uh, my grandfather, who, um, as far as we knew, did not know the Lord, had passed away unexpectedly, and, um, and so I was trying really hard to not believe in God. Uh, I had a lot of anger and bitterness in my heart uh, against that and, and grief that, that I was just trying to work through as a, as a kid, and then um, just a couple months before my baptism, what, what spawned my coming to Christ was um, that a, a very close friend of my brother's, just a few years older than me, uh, had taken his own life, and so I was in this place, 14 years old, that I just hated death. I hated death. But I felt absolutely crushed by the reality of the sin that was in my life. I felt crushed by the fact that if I didn't do something with that sin, that one day it was going to lead to my death. And so what I remember in that white robe coming up out of the water what were two things. It was just this picture that, that the blood of Jesus Christ had washed me clean of my sin. And it's like this weight came over my shoulder where I could finally rejoice in the fact that death no longer had a claim on me. You know, there's, there's a couple of things that all of those stories have in common. One of the things is something that you will absolutely never find in a quote-unquote digital baptism. You know what a digital baptism can never give you? Warm water and slippery socks. You know what it can't give you? It's the expression of that older lady's face a few feet in front of you who is rejoicing of the new life she has found in Jesus Christ. You can't see your parents' faces from the choir loft. You can't see the faces of the congregation from the tub. You don't get to hear the rejoicing of your church family who is celebrating the new life that you found in Jesus Christ. You, you don't get to see the awkwardness of the brother who usually only baptizes babies, immersing his new sister in Jesus Christ. These are the things that, that you could never find in an experience like this at your church. I mean, with the very best of intentions, this is what is happening to so much of the church is that by, by taking on our new definitions, we are losing so much of what God intends for us to experience because that physical experience becomes a trigger that reminds us of what else we remember from baptism, and that's joy. What you heard in every one of those stories was joy. So two invitations for us as we close out together this morning. First invitation is for those of you who may not profess faith in Jesus Christ or who don't know if you have faith in Jesus Christ. If you have questions, like you have doubts, maybe you've grown up in the church, but you're really not even sure totally where you stand spiritually, still not totally sure where you stand but with all of this, this Jesus stuff, that there's, there's an invitation for you this morning, and it's to discover your joy. Look at what takes place from verses 25 through 34. 
this man had so come to the end of himself that he was ready to take his own life. He was in a circumstance that that he believed he had created. He thought he had done something so horrendous that it could not be undone to the extent that he was ready to take his own life. He was ready to leave behind a wife and ready to leave behind children. He was ultimate, totally, completely at the end of himself, totally and completely undone, thought he had done something that was irreversible, but then he met Jesus. Through the extraordinary circumstances of, of this supernatural occurrence of an earthquake that opened the prison cell, and then the extraordinary kindness of Christians who refused to leave when they could have and who saw this man in his absolute worst moment, this same man who had just uh, hours before beaten them and locked them in chains, and they had mercy on him. Through the testimony of faithful followers of Jesus Christ, he calls out to them and he asks, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same man who was at the end of his rope, ready to take his own life, five verses later, he's rejoicing for the new life he has in Jesus Christ. What you are seeking in this world, you're going to find finally in Jesus. Like, I'm just going to tell you what you already know. It does not matter how much money you get. It doesn't matter how much sex you have. It doesn't matter what substances you find. It doesn't matter how much popularity you have. It doesn't matter about your family legacy. None of that matters. None of that matters at all. The the satisfaction that you are desperately seeking to desire, it is going to be found in Jesus Christ alone. And when you finally meet him, friend, you're going to discover ultimate joy. The things that this world have been lying to you, telling you they can give you, you're actually going to find it in Jesus. Joy and satisfaction, it's all his, it's all to be found in him. You don't come to Jesus to get joy. You come to Jesus because he is joy. He is everything that he promises us for us. So if you come to Jesus, it's an invitation to discover your joy. Second invitation is for those of us who profess faith in Jesus today, and it's to remember your joy. It's to remember your joy. Verse 25 Where are Paul and Silas when they are praying and singing hymns to God? They're in prison. They're in chains. I mean, the worst of the worst circumstances. But you remember Paul's story? You remember the man who was tasked with stamping out the mission of the church? You remember the man who was responsible for the death of Christians, who oversaw the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen? You remember that guy? How Jesus radically met him and changed him and transformed his life? Man who was deserving of absolutely nothing but God's wrath and judgment and just condemnation for eternity in hell saves him snatches him from the enemy. You think chains were going to stop Paul from singing? No, Paul had something that the world couldn't take away. He had joy in Jesus. And this is what happens to so many of us over time, though, is, man, we came out of those waters of baptism rejoicing. I mean, fired up, ready to charge hell with a water pistol for the glory of God, right? I mean, so excited about the life we'd found in Jesus. But then life happened. And it happened again, and it happened again, and it happened again. We we had a few too many days where we got punched in the soul. And all of a sudden, these truths, man, that they used to just blow our minds, now now they've become dull. 
We've grown bored of them. We don't want to hear them anymore. It's burdensome to us. We become dull. We become numb. We become immune to these truths that should shake us to our core. This is the work of the enemy. Like Jesus says, the parable of the sower, you know, the plant springs up. I mean, the, the, the cares of this world just start to choke it out day in and day out. Pain or suffering or sin or brokenness, it just pulls all of us down. And so, so friends, the, the invitation for you today is to remember your baptism in hopes that by remembering your baptism, you will remember your joy. You will remember that, that no matter how boring your testimony, by the way, there's no such thing as a boring testimony. Now, however boring you think your testimony is, you were at your core, dead in your sins, and you found a resurrection in Jesus Christ. That's your story. Testimony's not boring. You were dead in your sins, raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Man, man, we've got people all in this room. Your, your heart was falling apart. Your home was falling apart. Families, marriages, in the shackles and bondage of, of addiction. People have seen other people miraculously healed. I mean, just the grace of God just intervened at the worst of the worst of the moments of their lives. And so you know why some of us are crazy and lift our hands when we sing? Because we actually believe these things. We actually believe these stories. Like, we actually believe there's a God who gave us a real, actual resurrection from death to life. We believe in a God who snatched us out of the hell we deserved and gave us heaven and Jesus instead. We believe these things. Remember that you were buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in new life. Remember that your old self is gone. Remember that the power and the penalty of sin are no longer having any hold in your life. Remember your baptism and friends, remember your joy. Remember the joy that you have in Jesus. So just bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning. Just very simply for us before we come to the table for communion today. Uh, we've put these next step cards on all of your seats this morning. And so just a, a couple of quick things. Listen, today you're saying, yes, I want to discover joy in Jesus Christ. I want to become a follower of Jesus Christ. So we sang it earlier. I have tried this world and it's failed me. So I'm coming to Jesus to find what I've always been looking for because I know that I can find joy in him. Friend, you come to him in confession of your sin. You come to him with a broken, repentant heart saying, I'm going to turn from all that and run to Jesus. You call on his name in faith. You believe in his perfect life, the one you couldn't live. You believe in his death, the one that you deserved. You believe that he's risen again. You believe he's coming for you again one day. Call on the name of the Lord, and the promise is you will be saved. And so use that card this morning. Let us know today I want to become a follower of Jesus. That's my next step. Today I want to Follow Jesus in baptism. That's your next step. Listen, some of us in here, listen, I want to say this in love, but if you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, friend, you're walking in disobedience to Jesus. And it's time to take a step towards him today of obedience. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And if, if it doesn't give you joy to follow him in obedience, then maybe you actually need to go backwards and surrender your life to him and be saved. Receive a new heart and follow him in joy. For all of us today, maybe what you just need to do is just come before the Lord and confess, Lord, Lord I've been robbed of my joy. 
I've let my sin, I've let my circumstances, I've let life, I've let family, I've let work, I've let it all just rob me of joy, just choke out my affection for you. And he'll meet you there. So as we come to the table here in just a moment, we, we do this, as we'll see next week, to remember. To remember Jesus. And by remembering Jesus, we will remember our joy. So let's just come to him as, as the Apostle Paul exhorts us to do. Let's come in confession. So just invite the Holy Spirit to search your heart, to search your life, to lay at the feet of Jesus any sins. Ask him to reveal to us sins that we can't even see because of our sin, things that we don't even know that we've done. Invite the Holy Spirit to re reveal all that's unseen. And then what words, what actions, what attitudes, what habits, what motives, what behaviors, what is in you that is not of Jesus? Let's confess our sin to him now. Best news ever, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just. He will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So let's ask the Lord that as we confess, that he would grant us a heart of true and genuine repentance, that we would turn from our sins, that our lives would be marked as those whose old selves were buried with Jesus Christ, never to come back to life again because we found new life in him. So Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you that as we come to the table, we can remember Jesus. We can remember that his body was broken and ours wasn't. His blood was shed so ours wouldn't have to be. His life was perfect because ours couldn't be. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and we thank you for the work that he's done so that we can be saved. Restore our joy. Help us to remember Jesus. And by remembering him, help us to remember our joy. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen.